And so we do not take this for granted. And I pray we would be stewards of this time. And I do ask, Lord, would you graciously use me as your servant uh, to communicate well what you want me to communicate, that you will be the focus for all of us, that you will be exalted. I pray that we would have a, a reverence for you. Thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, you can see the guys. There should be Bibles, actually, at your, in your pews. If you need a Bible, um, uh, let us know. Maybe we can grab more, but we're excited about that opportunity to be able to have those for you. Um, we are in the book of Exodus as a local community. We go through books of the Bible. We're, um, uh, we, we do that, obviously, because if you think of it, you know, our, our natural tendency is to stay in those safe places, and we want to... One of our man, the mandates that God has given us uh, as as shepherd as servant leaders is to make sure that you're getting the whole counsel of God, and so that's why we are going through every every book of the Bible um, right now in Exodus, and in the fall we will be in First uh, Thessalonians. Um, you can check out the, the sermons online if you if you need to to catch up. Uh, you are entering a moving train. Hopefully, you'll be encouraged. Uh, Exodus 28 is where we would like for you to turn if you as a, as a local community. Uh, we desire to uh, f- uh, free you up to ask questions because uh, this is not just about you getting smart, although what you do and who you are as far as worship uh, is predicated on what you know. So we want you to get smarter, but we don't want you to just get smarter and arrogant. We want you to get smarter so it lead toward worship. Uh, that's our heart. And so um, if there's things that we can do to, to help with that, please raise your hand. We are uh, a community here. And so there's a reverence for Christ and in that wanting people to be moving more toward Jesus. So that's our heart behind that. We have a lot to cover as we um, go into, a, you know, it's called like the, the cafe, right? We, we're here to get some food, some spiritual food, okay? And so um, we got a lot to talk about. Um, let me just give you a brief overview. If you um, have not read the book of Exodus, wonderful book, um, Israel uh, is, is, is the people of God that have been um, uh, chosen by God. They've been oppressed, though. Um, and as they're oppressed by the most, the, the, the most powerful you know, entity of the world at that time, uh, Egypt, uh, this Moses is born, who is this, um, as it were, this typology, this rescuer. God reveals, uh, as Moses is born, he reveals himself to Israel. Uh, again, uh, showing himself to be a covenant God. He's, he hears their cries. He's um, a protector of them. And then he chooses Moses to deliver them from this slavery. Uh, and this would be kind of the, the linchpin of what the scriptures are about, about God choosing the people for his purpose and then protecting and being faithful to them for all time so that they would be those called by his name for him. Uh, God promises um, in chapters 5 through 7, promises uh, and gives deliverances to his people. He has this huge standoff with Pharaoh um, uh, between God trying to reveal, showing that, hey, you are nothing to me, Pharaoh. He provides all these plagues uh, through many chapters, chapters 7 through 12, uh, reminding Pharaoh that uh, he can do whatever he wants when he wants to. Uh, finally, he uh, basically, chapters 13 through 18 uh, takes the, uh, this powerful group, the Egyptians, and uh, through the Red Sea uh, journey, uh, kills many of these Egyptians, 
then he allows his people of God to wander and he protects and guides and cares for the people of Israel, uh, as it were, in the wilderness by providing bread from heaven and water from a rock. Again, showing his power uh, for his people uh, and his protection of his people and then his provision for his people uh, as he's continually moving them toward understanding what does it mean uh, for them to trust Yahweh as, as their God and what does it mean for them to be his people. And so uh, in that, you get to Exodus chapter 19 and 20. He gives the Ten Commandments and begins to express to them practically, here's what it means for you and I to be in relationship together. You're my people, and so now I want to help you understand what does it mean to be part of this family, right? We can relate to that if you, if you have kids. If you are, obviously, if you are a kid, you, you enter into a family. We always tell our kids you enter into a functioning community that's already there. Uh, before you. You are not the idol of the community. You are a functioning member of it. Um, And so um, that's what God is trying to help the people understand that he is the one to be idolized and they are the community members. And he's trying to help them understand what does it look like for them to function that way. Chapters 20 through 23 gives what you call the historical historical name, the book of the covenant, which is like just kind of the, the rules, as it were, of what does it mean to, to worship God, which we'll talk about in a, little, in a moment. And then you have the swing chapter of Exodus 24, uh, which details, hey, what does it mean to worship God? And so then you see from Exodus 24 all the way now even to 28 where he gives, he focuses in on the form of worship and, and, and what does it mean... What vehicles does, does God use um, for you and me to be able to worship him? When we say worship, to respond to him based on who he is and what he's done. Uh, to have this uh, encounter with God. What does it mean for the people to have this encounter with God? And so you get into Exodus 28. And one of the ways that we are able to respond to God, one of the ways we're able to worship God is even through uh, the dress of the saints, specifically the priest. Okay, and so we're going to um, walk through that. A lot of text here, but I'm going to walk through it say, and then hopefully try to want you to be thinking as we're going through this a very meticulous text, a lot of it, be thinking, why is the author writing this? Okay, why is the author writing this? As we talk about the garments, why is this so important? Okay, why are the garments so important uh, to Yahweh? Verse 1, it reads, it says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests and Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. And so um, what I'll do is we'll have the text up here and then we'll have some pictures that hopefully as I'm reading, you'll be able to see uh, what was happening with the garments that were being formed. And hopefully it can kind of just help, you know, hearing the word looking at the word, looking at the pictures can hopefully just help this journey as we try to gain insight on what God is trying to teach us. So verse one, we have Aaron and his sons are set apart for the office of the priesthood, right? And so he sets these guys apart. So what he's doing as, we, as he's forming the people and helping them understand what does it mean? How do they worship God? Um, verse two, and you shall make holy garments as he's explaining what, is, what does this look like? And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, uh, for glory and for beauty, don't miss that. For glory and for beauty, verse 3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood, to consecrate him for my priesthood, the sense of that they are, their goal, their role is to minister to me as it were. Verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make a breastplate piece 
an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. So you got these holy garments in verses 2 through 4 that they're making and are appointed by God. And then God explains what that looks like. Verse 5. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. And they shall make an effort of gold, of blue, and of purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twine linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel's of Israel. Don't miss that. You might want to circle that verse nine. Notice what they're doing there. Six of their verse 10, uh, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. Verse 13, you shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords. And you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. How meticulous. We have in verses 5 through 14, we have instructions are given to make this effort, this, this kilt thingy, this, this waistcoat that's to be worn by the high priest in super detail. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? You know, if we weren't reading it right now, we wouldn't be reading it. As soon as you got to the breastplate, you would have skipped to the next chapter. You know it. <laughs> right? Because I'm guilty too. Verse 15, you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of an effort, you shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sarges, topaz and carbuncle shall be the first row and the second row an emerald and sapphire and diamond and a third row a jacinth and agate. And an amethyst. In the fourth row of beryl, onyx, and jasper, they shall be set in gold filigree. Some of y'all just want to be a priest so you can be blinking. You know what I'm saying? Y'all like, man, got sapphires. So you got the details in, this, in these verses of the breastplate, right, design worn by the high priest, as well as that mysterious Urim, Urim and Thummim, right? Verse 21, there shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. There shall be like signets, each engraved with his name for the 12 tribes. You shall make for the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breast piece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breast piece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breast piece. Verse 25, the two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of the filigree. And so attach it front in front to the solder pieces of the effort. Verse 26, you shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breast piece on this inside edge next to the effort. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the effort at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the effort 
Verse 28, and they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with the lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place, you might want to circle that, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. These are your people. Verse 30, and in the breastpiece of the judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. Don't miss that. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. Verse 35. And it shall be an air on air when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. So you got, again, these more specifications on the road, right, along with the effort, with these pomegranates and these bells at the bottom. Verse 36, he says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And on Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen and you shall make a turban of fine linen and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. The gold plate, right? Verses 36 to 39 here. It seems to be worn on the turban of the high priest described in connection with the tunic and the embroidered coat that we're talking about. In verse 40, friends, Sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. So now we move on to these guys, right? Shifts instructions to the garments of Aaron's sons, the ordinary priesthood. Okay? Why is he doing this? So you, got, you know how meticulous that was? Wasn't that crazy? Why is he doing this? You shall make for them the glory, for, for them, for glory and beauty. Verse, 20, verse 41, and you shall put them on Aaron, your brother. And on his sons with him and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. They shall be a statute. This, excuse me, this, what I've said. This is the Lord shall be a statue forever for him and for his offspring after him. See, details, family, if we're honest, right, they can they can make you think that something really isn't important or they can overwhelm you. A lot of times, right? That's what usually happens. But I want to propose that detail actually should make you really want to pay attention. That when someone, when you do something, think about it. I mean, it's impractical in your practical life. When you do something for a friend or a spouse and you go through a lot of detail to make something happen, 
You want them to notice that, don't you? Doesn't it get you frustrated when you work really hard for something to bless somebody or do something or to, or to provide some situation and then someone glosses over it generally? You're like, hold on. Do you know, what I do? You, know what I, you know why I did all that? Did you see this part? Did you see that part? Right? Details actually are the opposite of what it makes us think a lot of times. Again, we either get overwhelmed or we turn a page, right? Or we kind of like, well, all those details must not be that important. No, actually, I'm going through all this detail because it's extremely important. Right? So what is God trying to teach his people as, as he gives us this, this intricate framework of the garments? You got the holy garments, right? In the sense they are... They're set apart from common clothing. We see that, right? They're expensive. They're ornate, right? You guys got, you twisting gold into braids. God wanted his, it seems obvious, he wanted his tabernacle worship to reflect his glory and beauty. Um, In fact, you think about the fact that in verse 43, it says, you know, if they didn't follow these instructions and do what he said, people would be struck down, would die, Right? And notice, they don't have shoes. These guys aren't wearing shoes, right? right? Because when they step, they come before the Lord, he's like, you ain't wearing shoes. This is holy ground, right? Which now reminds us of the burning bush, right? We take your shoes off. You're standing before the Lord. Can I provide uh, scenarios? When I think of, what is God trying to teach his people? I think of a couple of things. I would say the text is very clear. First, worship is serious. That worship is serious. The intricate detail that he gives in that text, that God takes worship. He takes responding to him, being in communion with him, extremely serious. That you have great care and, and you... And this whole specific narrative that he provides. He even gives directions, family. What is that in verse 42 on regarding their underwear? Right? That's to be warned. He said, I want to tell you what kind of underwear I want the priest to wear. That's how specific he is. And you know one thing that God obviously was, you know, it was probably easier to train the the Hebrews of old than us today. But I propose to you that those guys never left this text, I mean, ever thinking this sense of, of being casual toward God. I mean, it probably, they already had just a, a, a common grace, you know, cultural awareness of that. But can you imagine that this sealed the deal? Not just this chapter, but the way you see this throughout the book, right? That this whole irreverent approach to God, um, it, it would just be, it would be foreign. This text is about worship being serious and that guess what? God calls the shots on how he's to be approached. That God calls the shot. We don't call the shots, but God tells us how should he be approached. The other thing that this text is, it seems to be screaming at us is, is the need uh, for representation. As you look at this text as a whole, you know, specifically in verses 9 through 12, and you can also look at verses 15 through 21, 
it seems this, you have this concept of, of, him, of the high priest bearing the names of the people of Israel uh, on his body as he goes into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. This whole concept of writing the names of the children of Israel and on these, these little rocks and, and on these jewels and all this stuff. It seems he does this in two ways, this whole concept of wanting us to remember this representation, that, that the priest represented the people to God. You have the concept of the ritual dressing as a whole. Look at all the ways that he shows that through the ritual dressings, and then specifically those 12 mounted stones that represent the tribe of Israel. It seems that God is trying to show you and me, uh, and, and these guys, as they're listening to this, the Hebrews of old, that, man, that, that these holy priests are actually, actually representing Israel both, both federally, both um, spiritually, uh, but they are literally, he, he comes in and he is Israel to Yahweh. I'm pretty confident that no one would have missed that symbolism in antiquity. Now, why do I bring that up? That, he, that he's, he's reminding them of this, of this need for a representative. Because in that, in having a representative, guess what that representative does? He's, he's interceding. He's, he, he's, as it were, offering sacrifice to Israel. He's, 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 he's asking God to spare Israel. He's asking God to pardon Israel of her sins. He's asking God to accept Israel in spite of her sins. To allow Israel to be part and to be welcomed into his presence. He's asking God to forgive Israel of her sins. And we might go, yeah, I know that. Think about that, though. Think about that for the, the many, many years that this was happening. Why does he do this? The deep need. He's showing, he's showing that we, we talk about this. Even I've, we heard sis say, man, praise God that we, we help us see our need for you. Right? That's what Megan said. Think about that. Think about your need for God. See, when I think about our need for God, I, it's hard to not think about it from the perspective of uh, just out of void. You know, like how, you know, I know this, is, this, is, this is crude, but how like a drug addict needs a drug. Or, like, how do you think of when you think of need God? Do you think from the perspective of, because it's hard for me, I was, I was praying and asking the Lord, how do we talk about our neediness to God in a way that actually honors Christ? Because it seems like the neediness is almost, it's not in a matter of, of needing, or needing something to be complete, but it's neediness in, in actuality of essence. It's, um, it's, all, it's a neediness in the sense that without God, you are not what you are. You, you're, it's a nothingness neediness. I can't, it's almost like neediness compared to a creature needing bones and blood and oxygen. Like you, you, you exist to be a creature without those things. And like without God, when we're talking to people about our need and their need for God, we're not talking about it as if to balance you out. Right. Or, you know, like, yeah, you're really messed up. Or even we talk, you know, you being dead and he makes you alive. It still just feels like he's giving you something. Versus like the very essence of who you are. Like you, you're not even, a person without God is not a person, as it were. So the neediness is, 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 is this, I feel, I feel equipped and I feel inappropriate to even try to talk about what it means when we talk about our neediness toward, for God. 
And I'm wondering, as you look at this text here, and as he is trying to show the details that he provides for you and me to see how those in antiquity actually went before the Lord, and how serious that was for them, and how important it was for God to say, this is the way you're going to come before me. Was he trying to make it so clear, our neediness, our neediness for a representative, our neediness for forgiveness, our neediness for, for true life. That, so that when you continue to get that and you realize, man, how jacked up we are and how messed up we are and how we needed that and how that priest, although it was a beautiful thing and them being a representative, was still a shadow and did not fully do what it was supposed to do. Now then when Jesus comes, you see that? So now when we get that, and, and we're digesting that for, for millennium, and we're digesting that for, for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that finally when Jesus comes, and then you get chapter 19, for example, you get, you get these passages where we get to see Jesus as, as, being our, as being, as it were, our representative, our high priest, it means something. Look at, look at John chapter 19. If you can, we don't have, I think we have some of the text up here. I want to encourage you to look at it on your own time and think about what Jesus does. When you think of Jesus' whole concept of, of the high priest and what, and what they were as they represented God, uh, God, represented us to God, and then you think of Jesus coming and saying, okay, you see what he did, but then me serving as a representative before God, showing show my finished work on the cross, showing my, my, my ongoing, as they say in the Bible, ongoing heavenly intercession, that now I'm bearing the sins of the people. I become actually, as it were, when Jesus dies on the cross, he actually, as it were, becomes the people of God, taking on the sin of the world, receives a due penalty. What is he trying to communicate? Look at verse, uh, look at chapter 19. I love this passage here. I think this is what's happening here, family. Look at this. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. See, see, I think what's happening here, when we see that purple robe, we think of the kingship, and we should. But I want to propose, as I've been doing this study in Exodus, I think the, 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 the author is actually trying to say something even more than king as we think of just being a king over a land. When I look at how, the, how they dress the priest... I want to propose to you that the author was trying to show you something actually even more important. Not just him reigning over all creation, which is awesome, but he was trying to show you the retelling of Jesus being our high priest. Right here. He was trying to show you that, 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 it, that it, was, it was actually quite interesting um, that the very role they would throw on Jesus was, was that, that whole the whole you know, scarred the whole purple robe putting on Jesus is as it were the same kind of material and color that the high priest wore. And as it were, they thought they were mocking him, but in essence, they were actually, actually kind of just crowning him as the high priest to take over and be the representative for the people of God. It's a beautiful thing. And then you go, well, maybe, maybe that's too far. No, I think it's actually absolutely what's going on here. Because then you go down to verse 23 and it says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. But the tunic was seamless. 
Why do you think the author does that? The tunic was seamless, woven in one place from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, for it to see who shall it be. This was a fulfilled, the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Notice this. The author does something. He talks about the seamlessness. I want to propose to you, in addition to the robe piece, that this is basically the, the high priest robe that was woven. It was woven very different, and as was seamless. It was a seamless tunic. And that he, again, is pointing to Jesus as the high priest for his people. And so even as they are taunting Jesus and they're, they're divvying up his goods and they're, they're making fun of him, in essence, what they're really doing is they're revealing him as the one who would take on the sins of the world, who would be the representative, who would be the one that could forgive and have the sins forgiven for the people of God once for all. And we see this again, guys, in Hebrews chapter 7. I, I, bring, I, I bring this up, and this is a lot of text, but I want us, as we're reading the Bible, I want, I want the Holy Spirit to just keep reminding us when we go past these texts that we don't miss what's going on here. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named in the order of Aaron. He's saying that, guess what? There was an order. That was an old order, and it didn't accomplish all the purposes. There had to be a new order. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. There had to be another, there had to be another order, another order from the, 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 line, the line of Judah. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Continue on, please. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily, bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, you are a priest forever after, order, after the order of Melchizedek. You see that? You see that, guys? See, here's the thing. There's something... <laughs> There's something God is trying to teach you in me here. And as I, was, as I was reading the Bible, I was just struck. I was like, wow. He's trying to teach us that as you look at what God has done in history, you see these Jews. Can you imagine? You imagine, maybe you think you've done something that's, that's just, <laughs> think of your sins. Because I want to propose what, what, what should happen here. Can I, can I take a risk here? I want to propose that the blood of Jesus and what Christ has done on the cross should have you actually think of your sin and what, what we deserve and think of what you cannot pay for and think of who you are without a representative and think of the fact that in the midst of that in the midst of that, if you think of your journey, it shouldn't run, you shouldn't run to despair if you have a perfect representative. If you have a perfect representative, you don't run to despair, but to say, man, it should bring deep humility 
It should bring, I don't, it brings deep humility in my heart when I think of, wow, look at who I am and what I've done in my journey. And then God yet is still has exposed himself to me, has given himself to me and has given me an opportunity to experience true life and has retold my story where my story isn't my past, where my story isn't what I've done. But now I can actually entrust it to a perfect high priest, to a perfect king. So why does he give us all this? Why? Because worship is serious. When you think of who you are and then what God has done to retell who you are, to remake who you are, so that you're not that person. And that he is, this is what I love, that he's the only one who can do it. It changes. It changes your life. Family, uh, when I think of what, what, what would be a next, uh, a next step, what, what was a clear next step? My, my prayer uh, is first we would just digest that reality that Jesus is our, he's our high priest. But also, I would pray that now on this side of new creation, that God gives us another story. So he says he is our perfect high priest. And then the the story doesn't stop there. He now says because he's our perfect high priest, he has now made you perfect. And then he tells us that now we are part of this royal priesthood. And so what he does, he says, I don't, I want you to understand your story. I want you to understand I'm the only one who can pay, who can present you before God. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to now present others before God as a priest. Think about that. You, I'm going to present you and then I'm going to allow you to partake, to be a co-heir, to partake in this act, this work of, of coming before people and presenting God before them. Now, obviously, we don't get to pay for sin and things of that sort. But the Bible is clear that you and I get to retell the story as royal priesthood, as the people of God. And we get to be priests to this world. So what are you going to do? My prayer is that we will be priests to this world. Through discipleship, as we share our faith, as we neighbor. I just want to encourage you if, you, if you right now are like, well, what are you talking about? Well, tell me more about how do I become this priest? How do I? I just want to encourage It's not, no hoops you have to jump through. Every person in this room who, who loves Jesus have now been given that opportunity to be a priest. We, we have given our, we, we, we've said, Lord, we are sinners. And we believe that you have come and you've lived the life and you've died for us. And, and, and God has given us that grace to recognize our sin, to recognize our brokenness, and to recognize a loving God who did not destroy us, but was merciful in sending Jesus Christ as a payment for our sin. And so then we repent. We say, Lord, will you forgive me? Will you? I, I don't want to. That's not me. I want, I want, I'm praying that you would make me your child. God says when we, when we ask for forgiveness, when we confess with our mouth, him being our Lord, he forgives us of our sins. He gives us the grace to repent of our sins, to change our way. And he makes us his son and daughter by faith. So if you've been here and you're asking, well, how does that work? By faith. And so 
my prayer is for all of us in the, under the sound of my voice, will be living a life by faith and that you would have experienced Jesus as your savior. Because even as uh, we heard Shelby say this morning, we don't, want a, we don't want a person leaving this room dead in sin and separated from the life of God. Not at all. So this could be one of your first acts of worship right now is uh, taking communion uh, and tithe. If you are new to this local body.